You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Hi, my name is Hillary, and I have the... (laughs) I have the privilege of serving in our women's ministry and on the prayer team. And today's scripture passage is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. This is God's word. Thank you, Hillary. Well, friends, buckle up because this, the Bible commentators believe, is one of the most difficult passages in all of Paul's letters. So fun for me. But what I don't want us to miss is the overarching theme. We're being equipped by these words to disarm deception. And my hope for us today is that we would understand what that means, why we need it, and how it happens. So let's pray even now. Let me pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of truth and that you had revealed yourself in your word and ultimately through your son, Jesus Christ, We pray that today you would show us how the truth exposes and overthrows the lies, the deceit, and the evil in this world and sets us free. Father, for anyone who is deceived or is being tempted to be deceived, we pray that your truth would bring freedom as they trust your word, as they trust in Christ and that we would all be equipped to face whatever happens in this world. Spirit of God, would you speak to us? We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, in 1989, the Getty 
museum paid $10 million for a statue believed to be from the 6th century. The problem was it was a year later denounced as a fake. After being initially satisfied with the early test results, the statue was purchased and proudly displayed for all to see, and the unveiling was even on the front page of the news. However, experts immediately doubted. The more they examined the statue, the experts saw what appeared to be a mix of styles from different time periods, all in one statue. In fact, the former director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City said, I've dug up statues like this out of Sicily. They do not look like that. But what took many a year to figure out, the experts discerned in an instant. It was a fake. So what do you do when you've paid $10 million for a statue that might be fake? You put up a plaque that says, date, 530 BC or modern forgery. (laughs) But friends, unlike the Getty Museum, the Apostle Paul is not content with putting up a plaque over our lives saying, could be real, could be a total fake. No. Souls are at stake. And so he writes to us in order that we might be equipped to disarm deception. And this is important because the Bible often states that deception will increase as human history goes on. This is a key feature of what Christians call end times or last Days. Both phrases are used interchangeably in the Bible. And if you've noticed some confusion around this topic, you are not alone. For this is one of the reasons that Paul is writing again to the Christian men and women living in Thessalonica in the first century. Here's an overview of the passage. Some teachers had been spreading misinformation about the return of Jesus Christ. No doubt these false teachers had been speculating about the time and date of Christ's return, saying that it had already happened, that it was already upon them. This, of course, was frightening to the believers there in Thessalonica, and it's not hard to see why. Because as we've learned over the last few weeks, they were already facing persecution. They were already facing trials. And they were vulnerable to thinking maybe, somehow, they had missed the return of Jesus. Frustrated by these false teachers and the disruption their teaching was causing, Paul writes to bring clarity about the nature of what they can expect around end times. To do this, Paul draws on familiar themes from the Old Testament that rulers continue to emerge that rebel against God. They exalt themselves as divine authority like the ancient kings and rulers did in the Old Testament and like some were doing in Rome even in their day. And Paul says this pattern will continue and it will culminate with a particularly powerful ruler empowered by evil to deceive, and he will be called the man of sin or man of lawlessness. Or, as the Apostle John puts it, the Antichrist. But his influence will not last. 
Jesus Christ will return. That's an overview of this passage, quite simple. So let's pray. <laughs> let's worship. Now, some of you, if you've never been to church before, you're like, this all sounds like a 1980s heavy metal album. Like, what in the world? Well, just hang on. We all need to know these truths. And I know that if you try to dig into the details and try to fill in some of the gaps that aren't clear, it can get a little bit confusing. So I'd really like to do two things today. I want to address some broader questions about end times. And then I want to give us three points from this passage as we work through it that I believe capture the main concern, the big takeaways for you and for I. So first, when it comes to these themes, here's a Bible tip for the day. Bible study tip. It's free. What is clear in the Bible interprets what is cloudy. In fact, let's just say it together. What is clear in the Bible interprets what is cloudy. Well done. Not the other way around. There are some Christians who take what is cloudy and they try to interpret the rest of the Bible through that lens. That is not the way to study scripture. So when it comes to what we call the end times or the last days, I want to just give us a summary of what is very clear and what all Christians believe, the basic beliefs that unite followers of Jesus, Bible-believing Christians. Let me put it under this heading. What do I need to know about the end times? That if I didn't know anything else, like, you're good. You've got the basics. You've got the overview. You're faithfully following Jesus. What are the, what are the major themes that I need to know about end times? Let me give you four. And then I'll unpack them for a moment. First, first thing you need to know, there are two ages, this present age and the age to come. Second, this present age will grow more and more deceived. Third, a new age will be ushered in when Jesus Christ returns to bring final judgment and new creation. And fourth, we must live with readiness and gospel purpose. Those are the headlines. That's what you need to know about end times. The phrase this age and the age to come are used all the time by New Testament writers. This age describes the present course of human history. While the age to come is used for the, to describe the redemption that God has promised to bring. It was inaugurated when Jesus Christ first came and it will be fully consummated when Jesus Christ comes again. Jesus himself in the gospels uses the phrases this age and the age to come. The tension we live in now is between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's what the New Testament is always talking about, living faithfully now by the power of the Holy Spirit, awaiting this future hope and disarming deception in this present age. Those are the headlines. That's what we need to know about the end times or the last days. Now, there's a lot more speculation around some of the more cloudy details. But let me just say this. Here's a practical implication. If you want to debate 
and speculate further details beyond those headlines, you are free to do so, such as the timing and perhaps the nature of Christ's return or the identity of this mysterious figure that we're going to learn about in a moment. You are free to do so as matters of secondary importance. They are not essentials. Or the phrase I like to use, this is a debate for, not a divide for, when it comes to these secondary issues, right? Like, we do not need to divide as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ over these secondary matters, even though some people hold to them very, very, very strongly. That's a debate for. Have a blast debating that. But we do not divide. I've tried to give you the basics. When you debate, you must do so in such a way that you acknowledge that these are secondary matters. Or to put it another way, you must not debate in such a way that if someone else disagrees with you, that you don't come to the conclusion that they must not be faithfully following Jesus. It's a debate for, not a divide for. Those are the basics. Those are the headlines. What do I need to know about end times? Now, the second overview, what do I need to know about the Antichrist? You're like, man, my first Sunday here, we're talking about the Antichrist. Like, welcome to church. (laughs) There's a lot that could be said. Let me just give you three basic things. Number one, Antichrist is a ruler who exalts themselves with religious authority to deceive and oppose the people of God. Number two, Antichrist is a past, present, and future reality. And number three, the Antichrist will be overthrown by Jesus Christ. Get a shout out for Jesus. This is church. Those are the three things you need to know. Let me unpack those just for a moment. And this actually helps us make sense of the whole Bible storyline from Genesis to Revelation. As you see throughout scripture... There are these antichrist figures, these very evil, powerful rulers who oppose God and seek to oppose his people. You see this in Genesis, if you want to do your study later on, through Lamech, Nimrod, famously Pharaoh, and Nebuchadnezzar. What do they do? They set themselves up as objects of worship, and they use this evil power to destroy the people of God. There was some of this even happening in the Roman Empire. People such as Nero demanding worship as a god, setting themselves up as God and using their power to persecute the people of God. This helps us make sense of what the apostle John says in his first letter in the New Testament. First John chapter two, verse 18, he says, dear children, this is the last hour. By the way, everyone's like, are we living in the last days? Yes, we have been for 2000 years. This is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. There's this reoccurring theme. And this passage here will tell us that there will be a ruler who have great and evil power and display great deception at the end of this present age. But this should not lead to fear or panic because of Jesus Christ. Now, as we will see, 
The point of his teaching is to equip us to live faithfully in the present. For when all this happens, it will be obvious. So a practical implication before we dive into this passage, speculation around a lot of details, particularly about the identity of Antichrist, this mysterious figure, is, I would suggest, a fruitless exercise. But let me quote someone in greater detail. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. Michael Holmes, who wrote his commentary on 2 Thessalonians, the NIV application commentary, Listen to what he says. Speculation on the identity of Antichrist is, in my opinion, a waste of time, effort, and resources. The record of attempts to determine the identity of Antichrist is a long one, stretching back well over a millennium and a half. Likewise, the list of those confidently identified as Antichrist is a long one. It includes, ready? Various Roman emperors, the leader of the Vandal invaders who sacked Rome, Muhammad, various popes, the papacy itself, Emperor Frederick II, Pope Gregory IX, each of whom viewed the other as the Antichrist, by the way, Martin Luther, King George II of England, Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon III, each side in the American Civil War, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, the League of Nations, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, the King of Saudi Arabia, the United Nations, Khrushchev, the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, the birthmark on his forehead allegedly being the mark of the beast, King Juan Carlos of Spain, Pope John Paul II, Yasser Arafat, Saddam Hussein, the New Age Movement, theologian Matthew Fox, Henry Kissinger, and former presidents Jimmy Carter and Ronald Wilson Reagan. Six letters in each name. (gasps) And Reagan recovered from a serious wound. This sad history of the unsuccessful attempts to identify the Antichrist suggests that any attempts we might make will be no more successful. What is clear interprets what is cloudy, not the other way around. Remember this. Paul's purpose is not to fuel speculation, but to inspire preparation. As Bible commentator Warren Wearsby used to say, the purpose of these passages about the end times is not for us to make a calendar, but to build character. So how can we be equipped to disarm deception? Three things. Let me just say them up front and we'll work through the passage. How can you and I know that we are equipped? We must be devoted to the truth, discerning about evil, and dependent on Jesus Christ. Number one, we must be devoted to the truth. To a church already under the pressure of persecution and trials, Paul now wants to deal with these troublesome teachers and their false teaching. Look at verses one through three of First Thessalonians 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by a word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. 
He says, do not become unsettled, or the word means literally shaken from your mind. (laughs) Or shaken from your convictions. And do not remain in a state of anxious alarm. Which are, I must add, two things that can happen when you don't know the truth or when you're not holding fast to the truth. What happens when believers are are not familiarizing themselves with the Bible? They are easily unsettled and alarmed by false teaching. It must not be so in the church. These false teachers, as I've already said, were declaring that Jesus Christ had already returned, which was simply not the case. Paul's going to explain why in a moment. But notice how these teachers were going about doing this. Because in noticing reveals to us how the deception continues today. Teaching that is allegedly authoritative but doesn't line up with the Bible. A display of some kind of prophetic power. And third, word of mouth, or to put it bluntly, gossip. And I must say, not much has changed in the last 2,000 years. Deception continues to come in these forms. That despite being totally contradictory to the whole Bible, some will claim, even whole cult groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, claiming to have new revelation. Even though that revelation that they claim to have is completely contradictory with the Bible. Or there are some who claim to have supernatural power and people are wooed and awed by that. Wow, look, they, they performed a miracle and this guy I saw on YouTube said if I send him a million dollars, he'll send me a handkerchief that'll heal my grandma. Like, how can he be wrong? Don't be deceived. What are they actually teaching? Or simply by word of mouth, despite being unbiblical, there's certain false teaching that continues to become popular through TikTok. In all my years of preparation, I was not prepared that one of the most frequent arguments that I would have to be prepared for as a pastor was, but I saw it on TikTok. (laughs) Like, it must be, I saw a TikTok video that said this thing about the Bible. It must be true. I'm like, oh, Lord, help us. Don't let anyone deceive you. And the best way to ensure that this does not happen is not only by knowing the truth, but being devoted to the truth. In fact, we're going to get into it later But Paul tells them at the end of this chapter in verse 15, so then, brothers, after saying all of this, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. Stand firm is the solution to being unshaken. Holding fast is the solution to being unnecessarily alarmed. How can we do that? How can we be devoted to the truth? By regularly reading and familiarizing ourselves with the truth daily. If you've ever tried to remove something from your diet, 
because of allergy or perhaps a health reason, as many of you have, such as sugar or dairy, and you've ruled it out for a long time, and then somebody sneaks it in, or they didn't tell you those ingredients were in there, it gets reintroduced, you notice it instantly. Your body notices it instantly. I've seen some of you are like, one bite, this is not gluten-free. <laughs> I turn into the Hulk when this happens. You don't want to see what happens. You notice it instantly. And so it is with the truth. Read the word of God constantly. Meditate in your own reading together. When we gather together on Sundays, like we're here to study the word of God so that anything foreign will be recognized instantly and you will not be unsettled or alarmed. Friends, part of our goal as a a church is to be devoted to the truth, constantly immersing ourselves in the word of God. Are you encouraging one another to be devoted to the truth? Or are we fascinated by the spectacular? Are we engaging in the, the gossip? Be devoted to the truth and you will disarm deception. And the truth in this case is that there are certain events that must take place before anyone can say that Jesus has returned. And so Paul explains this, and there are a lot of details in here that are widely debated, but please do not miss his main point. In order to disarm deception, number one, we must be devoted to the truth. And number two, we must be discerning about evil. We must be discerning about evil. And so we get to the bulk of this passage. There are certain things that will take place before Christ returns. Verse three and four. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Again, Paul is drawing upon what he had previously taught them. No doubt drawing on Old Testament examples like we find in the book of Isaiah or the book of Daniel, that this fallen world will produce rulers empowered by evil, particularly so, who set themselves up as God, as the authority. This happened in times past, like the Pharaoh who demanded to be worshiped and persecuted the people of God, like Nebuchadnezzar who sets himself up this massive monument to himself to be worshiped on pain of death if you don't. If you read about what was happening in Rome at that time in the empire, you'll know that many of the emperors were claiming worship for themselves. Caesar is Lord, which made it so radical for Christians to say, no, 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 Jesus is Lord. For us, it's a bumper sticker. For them, in some periods in time, it was a death sentence because they were challenging the ruler of this present age. It happened in times past, 
But Paul says here that it will reach a culmination or a climax before Jesus comes back. But a few things need to happen first. First, the rebellion. The word there is apostasia, a falling away. It may even be that this describes many who would perhaps claim to be Christian, who in fact are not. This is regularly addressed in the New Testament. Let me give you two examples. Jesus said this in his teaching about end times. Matthew chapter 24, verse 10 to 12. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. I quoted earlier the Apostle John who said the Antichrist will come, but the spirit of anti- there many Antichrists have already come. In that same context, in that same chapter, he says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And so it could be that this great apostasy, this rebellion could be that there are many who claim nominal Christianity, which we all know to be true. There are many for whom Christianity is just a a cultural thing that they take for granted. My grandmother, she was an Episcopalian, so I'm in. Nations might claim to be Christian, just like families and individuals. And yet when deception increases, the evidence will be that they never truly were. The rebellion occurs, significant. But it's probably connected to this second item, that the appearance will be of a man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness or man of sin, otherwise known and referred to as Antichrist. For he will be anti-God and anti-God's law. How will you know? He will lead to wickedness. There's an ethical component here that Paul is addressing. It will lead to wickedness. Living in such a way that goes against God's design, goes against God's truth, goes against God's law. Now, as I've referenced several times, the apostle John says that the spirit of Antichrist has been around already, but Paul says here that there will be this culmination and a final, powerful version of this, the man of lawlessness. And as being anti-God himself, he will set himself up as if he were God. And Paul uses the phrase, setting himself up in God's temple. There are a number of disputed details here. This is one of them. If you read all the books on this, I came across seven different views on what Paul is referring to when he mentions that this man of lawlessness will set himself up in the temple. What did Paul have in mind? Did Paul have in mind a physical temple in the past or perhaps a physical temple in the future? Or, like many Christians have believed throughout history, does Paul have the church in mind? when he uses the word temple. 
After all, every time the Apostle Paul uses the word temple in the New Testament, he's always referring to the church. Could someone arise from what looks like the church, but then deceive many when he shows his true colors? Or, like many other Christians have believed throughout history, is this just a broad and general theme that the idea of setting oneself up in a temple is likened to the phrase that we might use of a ruler today. They've enthroned themselves. Who's sitting on the throne? When we use that phrase, we don't often have a throne in mind, but what a throne represents. Which view is correct? Choose your own adventure. You decide. But in any case, the man of sin would appear as obvious and blasphemous. That's what you need to know with great religious draw and power, but who turns out to be a great deceiver. And you will know because they will set themselves up as God and they will lead to wickedness. This is one of the sections where the interpretation of the cloudy parts are widely debated. My pastoral word to you is we must be careful about being too certain about what is cloudy. You don't have to have the exact specifications of this matter to be a faithful follower of Jesus. It's the principle that's important. And what is that? That there is a danger of being deceived by counterfeit miracles, false teaching, and false allegiances with authorities who arise and claim for themselves what belongs to God alone. That's the warning. That's the underlying principle. And so Paul goes on to say in verse five, don't you remember when I was with you, I told you these things. And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. There's a few more disputed details. There's a restraint, Paul says. But what is Paul referring to? Could this restraint be the work of the Holy Spirit? Could this restraint be the presence of the church? Could this restraint be the preaching of the gospel? Could this restraint be a form of government? Choose your own adventure. You decide. Which is it? In one sense it makes very little difference where you land. The point is that in God's providence, this final antichrist man of lawlessness is not here yet. And whatever that restraint is, when it is removed, he is revealed for who he is. But notice Paul makes a couple of interesting points. He says the power of lawlessness is already at work. And then goes on to make another general point in verse 9 through 12. 
the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan always works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. The two things I want to draw your attention to are that the spirit of lawlessness is already at work and that this is in accordance with how Satan works. This is what we're to notice if we're going to disarm deception. We need to be discerning about evil. Paul says that there will be displays of power through signs and wonders that serve what? The lie and leads to wickedness. Jesus himself warned of those who would attempt to persuade people through mere signs and wonders, but whose message would be an obvious lie. I suppose my pastoral point here is not that we should be spending all of our time speculating about who this figure is or when or where he will appear, but we need to be focusing on discerning evil now. One of the great classic Bible commentators, Ian Marshall, puts it like this. The effect of verse 12 is to generalize to some extent what Paul has been saying. We do not have to wait until the point when we can, as it were, identify the arrival of the final climax of evil in order to see the outworking of the divine process of judgment. It is true at all times that sin consists in delighting in what is wrong. It follows that the primary significance of the passage is not that we should be trying to calculate whether or not the end is near, but that we should be concerned about the moral and spiritual issues which are involved. In other words, Paul's final generalizing comment returns the focus from the future to the present. Our fate then will be determined by how we respond to the truth of the gospel now. How do you respond to the truth now? That will be a coming attraction of your future. Here's a practical note. There are some people who are vulnerable to displays of power because they are not familiar with the truth. They think, wow, look at that spectacle. They're so charismatic. They're so powerful. I mean, they can't be wrong. I've spoken with many like this. But if they compare what's actually being said and what the fruit or the result is with what the word of God says, it's very easily discerned as a lie. Church, you are not to be those who are easily swayed by displays of power. You, men and women, all of us, we must be those who test everything by the truth and discern what is good and what is evil. This passage in describing this man of lawlessness also shows us something very fundamental, the essence of sin. 
How does Satan always work? What is the mystery of lawlessness? It's setting yourself up in God's place. Is that not what sin is? Setting yourself up, enthroning self on the throne of your heart, as it were, in the very place of God, that is the essence of sin. That is the essence of lawlessness. Setting what the man of lawlessness does, writ large in public, is what the human heart does when it rebels against God. It puts self over him. And the consequences are great for those that do. Paul says they perish in verse 10. And he goes on to say, God sends them a delusion. What does that mean? Well, if you hear and resist the truth enough times, God will give you over to what you want. That's the delusion. Believe your lie. That is what you want. It is not that these people who go to destruction cannot believe the truth. It is that they will not believe the truth. And Paul ends by saying they delight in wickedness. The way to be prepared against deception in the future is by discerning evil in the present. Could you be deceived? You need to know what is evil. You need to be discerning about what is evil. But please don't miss what was in the middle of that passage because it's the key. We must be devoted to the truth, discerning about evil, and lastly, dependent on Jesus Christ. Friends, do not miss the good news of this passage. There's this evil and wickedness and lawlessness and the man of lawlessness at the end of this present age will be revealed. But verse eight of chapter two, B dot, 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 who the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Where does Paul focus? It is worth noting that in all of Paul's writings, this is the only passage in which he talks about the man of lawlessness or Antichrist and does so because some false teachers were disrupting these men and women. But when he does so, even as there are some mysterious details, he is crystal clear about the ultimate fate. This man will be overthrown by Jesus Christ. He refocuses us on Jesus and he raises the stakes about what we do with the truth of Jesus. So have you heard the truth? Do not harden your heart. Because one of the points of this passage is to show that judgment will come. Do not second guess this. What have you done with the truth? You will perish if you do not love the truth. So receive, believe the truth, and be saved. Are you easily impressed by false displays of of power? Don't be. And to the Christians, there's an urgency here to enable us to live in the tension. Let me put it like this. You must be ready at any time 
And you must be ready to wait a long time at the same time. (laughs) You need to be ready to give an account for your life at any time. Amen? And you must also be prepared to wait for a long time at the same time. Preparation. What does that mean? Investment in discipleship. Investment in the gospel. This is how Paul always instructs. We must devote ourselves to the truth, which will make us discerning about evil as we are dependent on Jesus Christ. See, there's good news in this passage. To those who were surrounded by the pressure of persecution and the deception of evil then, and even for those today who are surrounded by those same pressures, Paul's focus is the same. Be dependent on Jesus Christ. No matter how dark the night may be, no matter how bad it gets, Jesus wins. To those who throughout history have been persecuted by systematic evil, they would read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and find comfort that Jesus wins. To those throughout the world today who are right now being systematically persecuted and face enormous pressure, they read the words of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in their own language and they take comfort because Jesus wins. And to us today, whatever we, evil we face now or in the future, we are comforted to know that what? Jesus wins. Therefore, we must be dependent on Jesus. Why are we told to hold fast? Why are we told to stand firm? Why are we told to be faithful? Because those that do show that they share in the triumphant victory of Jesus who overthrows lawlessness with the splendor of his coming. The best way to disarm deception is by being so familiar with and dependent on the truth of Jesus Christ. For it is a beautiful truth. What is it that heals and overthrows lawlessness? The splendor of Jesus. See, if lawlessness is essentially trying to take the place of God, that's the essence of sin. Replacing what the temple was always pointing toward, where man could approach God through sacrifice. So how does Jesus overthrow this? Well, in his first coming, Jesus accomplished what the original temple was always pointing toward, providing a once and for all sacrifice for sin. This is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's why the huge veil in that ancient temple was torn, not from the bottom to the top, but the top from the bottom. A new way has been made. It will not be that we are saved according to our works, but the finished work of Jesus Christ. See, if the essence of sin is man taking the place of God. The essence of the gospel is God lowering himself and taking the place of man on the cross. What a splendor. What glory that Christ would do this to us. And he rose again to bring us new life. And he will come again to set all things right. If you reject the splendor of Jesus, it will be to your downfall. For you are rejecting forgiveness and healing and you will get what your sin deserves. 
But if you receive the splendor of Jesus, what he's done for you, then you are saved, you are healed, you are made new, and one day you will be brought into glory. And it is in response to the splendor of Jesus and what he's already done that you are changed, that you are enabled to live a faithful life and avoid deception and avoid sin and avoid lawlessness. It is the splendor of Jesus that causes our worship. It is the splendor of Jesus that produces faithfulness. It is the splendor of Jesus that enables us to bear witness in this dark world. So let us respond right now, not by enthroning ourselves or anything from this created world, but enthrone Jesus on our hearts for he is worthy and in the end he wins amen let's give it up for the risen lord jesus and the splendor of his coming heavenly father i pray that right now we would respond in the one appropriate way worship that our response right now would be an evidence that you are on the throne of our hearts. May this be a time of repentance. If in any way we've engaged in lawlessness by putting self first, being easily persuaded by false displays of power or false allegiances to worldly powers, we repent of that and we say, Jesus, you alone belong in the throne of my heart. And Father, if there's anyone here who's never believed in the truth of Jesus, I pray that today they would. That they would say, Jesus, you are Lord. You are Lord of my life. You are Savior. I believe you died on a cross for me and rose again on the third day to give me new life. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in our hearts, bring courage, bring boldness, bring conviction, bring humility, produce faithfulness as we respond to you now. We say together, Jesus, you are king and we worship you and we anticipate your glorious coming again when you will overthrow lawlessness once and for all. Do it in our hearts now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.